You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today we're bringing you an episode from Law & Disorder, where we dive into the world of true crime stories with memorable cases that have lasting effects for law enforcement. Today we are bringing you a special episode of Law & Disorder. Instead of talking about a case today, I want to share with you the history of a facet of forensic science that some of us take for granted, and we carry it around with us daily. Today we're going to be talking about fingerprints, which are a more recent forensic phenomenon than you may think. In fact, it took many centuries for us to find the true root of identity science. It wasn't until the 1800s that we really realized our fingerprints were 100% unique to one another, and we'd been carrying them around on our persons for millennia. So today, let's talk briefly about the history of fingerprints. As long as human beings have existed, we have had fingerprints. The ancient civilizations of Babylon and China were among the first to see the benefit of using fingerprints as a form of identification. In Asia, Europe, and North America, there are cave paintings which feature fingerprints, believed to indicate the identity of the inscription's authors. In China, there is evidence of fingerprint impressions made in clay, which were then used for official documents on archaeological material dated back to the 7th century. However, there is additional evidence that suggests this practice of using fingerprints to sign official documents began as early as the period of the Han Dynasty, which lasted from 220 to 202 BC. So, to put this in context, this was long before the Roman Empire ever existed, and there's even evidence of fingerprints being used to seal documents during the Holy Roman Empire. But the modern practice of fingerprint identification was pioneered by British anthropologist Sir Francis Galton, who was actually a cousin of Charles Darwin. Galton was the first to show scientifically that fingerprints could be used to identify individuals. The result of his studies showed not only that no two fingerprints are exactly alike, but also that a person's fingerprints remain the same and grow with them throughout their lifetime. Galton's findings were published in 1892 and included the three most common fingerprint classifications, arches, loops, and whorls, which are still used and recognized today. When it came to identification science in law enforcement, we were rather limited to individual characteristics and physical descriptions for many centuries, especially before the invention of photography and the concept of the mugshot. It was the Industrial Revolution that inspired the need to have a standardized form of identification, as criminals were finding it easier and easier to travel between jurisdictions and commit crimes along the way. In addition, the movement of people from the countryside to the city, as well as the ever-growing gap between social classes, ushered in an era that created a society of strangers and made it more difficult for neighbors to be able to identify one another based purely on the knowledge of their local community. It became increasingly important to find a way to identify those with a criminal record, since brandings had gone out of fashion and society feared the habitual criminal. At first, body marks, such as moles, birthmarks, freckles, and scars, were used as the primary identifiers for individuals, and they were sufficient. However, it was quickly realized that it was quite easy to misidentify people. As we know, even today, human memory is surprisingly rather terrible at actually remembering things. Eyewitness accounts are often the least reliable form of evidence in any criminal case, even today. 
But before fingerprints, the United States criminal justice system did utilize a different form of identification for criminals called the Bertillon system. This system was developed by French anthropologist Alphonse Bertillon in 1879, and it made physical descriptions of criminals searchable and included a standardized set of measurements accompanied by a detailed physical description and a photograph of the individual, otherwise known as a mugshot. This system was a good idea, but rather tedious in practice. In all, there were five primary measurements, head length, head breadth, length of the middle finger, length of the left foot, and the length of the cubit. This is the forearm from the elbow measured all the way to the extremity of the middle finger. In retrospect, of all the parts of the body to measure, these features would be least likely to be affected by weight loss or gain, and it would be difficult for the criminal to obscure any of these physical features without creating significant self-harm. But within the next few decades, the findings of Sir Francis Galton and the merits of fingerprint identification would make the Bertillon system all but obsolete. It was British law enforcement who first began to utilize fingerprints in a legal capacity. Sir Edward Richard Henry, a British official stationed in India, created a system of fingerprint classification for Indian criminals, which included a catalog of over 1,024 fingerprint classifications. Similarly, in Argentina, a police official used Galton's findings to create a fingerprint system, which successfully made a fingerprint identification in a murder in 1892. But it was the dawn of the 20th century that brought fingerprints to the forefront of criminal identification. Expanding upon the work of Sir Edward Richard Henry, Scotland Yard founded their Central Fingerprint Bureau. And in 1903, the New York Bureau of Prisons was the first institution in the United States to utilize fingerprints as a standardized mode of identification for inmates. Following the success of this system, the United States Army began utilizing fingerprints as the standard method of identification for soldiers in 1905. The true standardization of fingerprints as identification in the United States was spearheaded by the FBI when they established their fingerprint repository within the Identification Division in 1924. The repository held cards with different fingerprint records in a centralized location that could be sorted and searched for ease of access in investigations. Over the first 50 years of the fingerprint repository's existence, the FBI collected more than 200 million fingerprint cards. As technology evolved and the investigative needs of law enforcement broadened, the possibility of a computerized database of fingerprint records finally became a reality in 1991 when the FBI began to develop APHIS, the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, to computerize the card collection system already in existence. APHIS served as a tool to eliminate duplicate fingerprints and make it easier to store and share fingerprints among law enforcement agencies. In 1999, the database was introduced, and it allowed law enforcement officials to request a set of criminal prints from APHIS and get a response within as little as two hours. APHIS stores the fingerprints of criminals, but also regular civilians as well. It is a system that runs on an algorithm, and just like many other modern algorithms, APHIS functions more efficiently with the more data it is fed. Essentially, the more fingerprint data that is entered into and analyzed by the APHIS algorithm, the more likely it is that the program will make an accurate match whenever an unknown fingerprint is uploaded for comparison. This is not to say that any and all fingerprints are in APHIS. Outside of criminal prints, the civil prints that are uploaded to APHIS include fingerprints of individuals who hold government jobs, both federal and local, jobs that handle confidential information, 
banking jobs, teaching jobs, law enforcement jobs, and any job that involves security issues that require the applicant to be fingerprinted. If it makes you, as the listener, feel any more confident, it is likely that my own fingerprints are in the APHIS system, as I had to be fingerprinted for an internship with a federal government institution while I was in college, and I have absolutely no fear about this fact. Fingerprint evidence is, and for the last century, has been a vital part of forensic science and our criminal justice system as a whole. Today, we have gone far beyond collecting fingerprints with ink and paper, and live scanning technology allows us to get more accurate fingerprint data for background checks and inmate bookings. Our fingerprints even open our phones, but don't worry, those fingerprints aren't being shared with programs like APHIS. But the progress of fingerprint identification through the last century is proof that we are always looking for the best ways to identify individuals both within and outside of our criminal justice system to seek safer communities. We thank you for tuning into this episode of Precinct 444 and invite you to discover more episodes of Law and Disorder and our other shows on the network wherever you find your podcasts. As always, thank you to Christopher Mitchell for editing today's episode, and we look forward to seeing you again at the precinct. Stay safe. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to precinct444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 East Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct. Thank you.